Section 15 of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter 36. The Circle Meets. Mr. Raphael Willings was a product of his age. Though he was still in the early forties, he had pushed himself into cabinet rank by the sheer force of his character. To describe him as a popular minister would be to stretch the truth beyond permissible bounds. He was neither popular with his colleagues nor with the country, who, whilst recognising his remarkable powers and acclaiming him as the greatest of the parliamentary orators, nevertheless distrusted him. He had given so many proofs of his insincerity that it was remarkable that he should have attained to the position he occupied. But he had a number of followers, men who were unwavering in their faith, who could be depended upon to vote steadily at the lift of his finger, and the government majority was too small to risk the exclusion of the Willings block. Amongst his colleagues he had a bad name. It is not necessary to particularize the circumstances which produced his reputation, but it is a notorious fact that he escaped appearing in an unsavory divorce case by the skin of his teeth. So unpopular was he that twice Merrill's Club and a fashionable nightclub, of which he was a member and an habitué, were raided by the police in the hope of compromising this mighty politician. The raid had been planned by the wife of one of his colleagues, and that Willings was not unaware of the fact was proved when the newspaper he owned aimed a bitter attack on the lady's unfortunate husband, an attack so worded, so framed, that the minister retired from public life. A well-built man, inclined to plumpness, slightly bald, there was no gainsaying his personal charm. He was under the impression that his introduction to Thalia Drummond had been skilfully manoeuvred by himself. He would have been horrified to know that the lady who introduced him had received instructions that morning from the Crimson Circle to bring the introduction about. The Crimson Circle had its agents in all branches of life and in all classes. There were bookkeepers, there was at least one railway director, there was a doctor and three chefs d'hôtel amongst the hundred who obeyed the call of the Crimson Circle. They were well paid and their duties were not onerous. Sometimes, as in this case, they had no more to do than to bring about an introduction between two people whom the Crimson Circle desired to meet. But in every case their instructions came to them in exactly in every the same form. The organization of this great force was extraordinarily complete. In some uncanny way the chief of the Crimson Circle had smelled penury and disaster almost as soon as the recipients of these two evil factors were aware that they were present. One by one they had been absorbed, each ignorant of the other's identity, and profoundly ignorant of their master. He had come to them in strange places and circumstances. Each had his own function to perform, and generally the part which was played by the subordinate members of the League was ludicrously simple and unimportant. A few members of the circle had, in a panic, made statements to the police headquarters, and from them it was learned how simple were some of the tasks which were given out by the mystery man. 
from fear of the tragic consequences of this loyalty the majority of the crimson circle remained loyal to their unknown chief and it was a remarkable tribute to his system of espionage that when he sent forth his summons as he did on the day derrick yale lunched with the commissioner calling every member of the crimson circle to the first meeting they had ever held giving them the most explicit instructions as to the garb they should wear and the means they should adopt to avoid disclosing themselves to their fellows he omitted the waverers and the malcontents as though their very thoughts were written plainly before him to thalia drummond that meeting will always remain the most vivid and poignant memory of her association with the crimson circle the city contains many old churches but none anterior in date to the church of st agnes on powder hill it had escaped the ravages of the great fire only to be smothered under by the busy city which had grown up about it enclosed by tall warehouses so that its squat steeple was absent from the skyline it had a congregation which might be numbered on the fingers of two hands although it supported a vicar who preached punctiliously every week to a congregation which was practically paid to attend once a churchyard had surrounded it and the bones of the faithful had been laid to peace within its shadow but the avaricious city grudging so much waste building land had passed acts which had removed the bones to a more salubrious situation and had covered the place of family vaults with office buildings entrance to the church was up an alley which led from a side passage and the figures which slunk along the unlighted way seemed to melt through the almost invisible doors into a gloom even thicker than the night for in the church of st agnes the crimson circle held the first and last meeting of his servitors here again his organization was marvellous every member of his company had received explicit orders telling him to the very minute when he must arrive so that no two came together how he obtained the keys of the church what careful manoeuvring he must have planned to bring the hour of meeting and the dispersal between the two periods when the lane would be patrolled by the city police so the drummond could only guess she came into the alleyway punctually went up the two steps to a door which opened as she approached and was closed immediately she entered the lobby there was no light of any kind save for the faint light of night which filtered through a stained-glass window go straight ahead whispered a voice you will take the end of the second pew on the right there were other people in the church she could just distinguish them two in each pew a silent ghostly congregation none speaking to the other presently the man who had admitted her came into the church and walked to the altar rails and at the first words she knew that the servants of the crimson circle sat in the presence of their master his voice was low and muffled and hollow she guessed he wore the veil she had seen over his head the first night she had met him my friends he said and she heard every word the time has come when our society will be dispersed you have read my offer in the public press 
and you are interested to this extent that I intend distributing at least twenty percent of the money which the government must eventually give me amongst those who have served me. If there are any here who are nervous that we shall be interrupted, let me assure them that the police patrol does not pass for another quarter of an hour, and that it is quite impossible for the sound of my voice to reach outside the church. He raised his voice a little, and there was a hard note in it when he added, "'And to those who may have treachery in their hearts, and imagine that so widely announced a meeting might bring about my undoing, let me say that it is impossible that I shall be captured to-night. Ladies and gentlemen, I will not disguise from you that we are in considerable danger.' facts which may enable the police to identify me have on two occasions come to light i have upon my tracks derrick yale who i will not deny is a source of considerable anxiety to me and inspector parr he paused who is not to be despised in this supreme moment I do not hesitate to call upon every one of you for an extraordinary effort of assistance. Tomorrow you will each receive operation orders prepared in such detail that it will be impossible for you to misunderstand any particular requirement I have made known. Remember that you are as much in danger as I, he said more softly and your reward shall be correspondingly great. Now you will pass out of the church one by one, at thirty seconds interval, beginning with the first two on the right, continuing with the first two on the left. Go. At intervals, these dark figures glided along the aisle and vanished through the door to the left of the pulpit. The man at the chancel rails waited until the church was empty, and then he, too, passed through the door into the lobby and into the passage. He locked the outer door and slipped the key into his pocket. The church clock was booming the half-hour when he called a taxicab and was driven westward. Thalia Drummond had preceded him by a quarter of an hour, and in the taxi which carried her to the same end of the town she brought about a lightning transformation of her appearance. The old black raincoat, which covered her to the throat, the heavy-veiled black hat, were taken off. Beneath it she wore a cloak of delicate silk tissue, covering an evening dress which would have satisfied her apparently exigent master. She took off her hat and tidied her hair as well as she could, and when she stepped down at the flashing entrance of Marrow's club and handed a small attaché case to the bowing attendant, she was a picture of radiant loveliness. So Jack Beardmore thought. He was supping with some friends much against his will, for he hated the night side of life, when he saw her come in and scowled jealously at her debonair escort. "'Who is he?' Jack's companion glanced across lazily. "'I don't know the lady,' he said. "'But the man is Raphael Willings. He's a big pot in the government.' Thalia Drummond had seen the young man before he had seen her, and she groaned inwardly. 
half of what her host said she missed her mind was completely absorbed in other directions and it was not until a familiar phrase reached her ear that she turned her interest towards the minister antique swords she said with a start i am told you have a wonderful collection mr willings are you interested he smiled a little in fact quite a lot she said awkwardly and it was not like thalia to be at a loss for a reply could i ask you to come along to tea one day and see them said raphael one doesn't often find a woman who is interested in such things shall we say tomorrow not tomorrow said thalia hastily perhaps the next day he made the appointment then and there writing it ostentatiously on his cuff she saw jack leave the club without a look in her direction and she felt absurdly miserable she did so want to talk to him and was praying that he would come over to their table mr willings insisted upon driving her home in his car and she left him with a sigh of relief he did not harmonize with her mood that night there was a little forecourt to the flats in which she lived and she had dismissed her admirer he made no secret of this relationship in the street outside she had to walk a dozen paces to reach one of the two entrances and even before she had sent her escort away she was aware that a man was waiting for her in the darkened court she stood on the pavement until willings's car had moved on and then she came slowly toward the waiting man he spoke for a minute in a voice that was a little above a whisper and she responded in the same tone the conversation was of a very short duration presently the man turned without sign or word of farewell and walked quickly away and the girl entered her flat though the man made no sign he knew he was being followed he had been waiting for ten minutes in the dark of the forecourt and had seen the stealthy figure in the doorway of a closed shop opposite the flats apparently however he was oblivious of the fact that somebody was walking behind him somebody he knew would presently overtake him and look into his face he turned into a side thoroughfare where the street lamps were few and far between and as he did so he slackened his pace presently the spy overtook him choosing for the point of passing a place within the radius of a lamp he had bent his head to peer into the first man's face when suddenly the quarry turned and sprang at him the trailer was taken by surprise before he could shout a grip of iron was around his throat and he was flung half senseless to the stone pavement and then from nowhere in particular appeared as by magic three men who pounced upon the prostrate tracker and jerked him to his feet he glared round dazed and shaken and his eyes fell upon the man he had been set to watch my god he gasped i know you the other smiled you will never be able to employ your information my friend he said chapter thirty seven i will see you if you are alive jack beardmore went home savage and sick at heart thalia drummond was an obsession to him and yet he had every reason to believe the worst of her he was a fool a thrice condemned fool he told himself as he paced the library his hands thrust into his pockets his handsome young face clouded with the gloom of despair he felt at that moment he would like to hurt her punish her as she unconsciously had punished him 
he flung himself down into his chair and sat for an hour with his head on his hands covering the old ground which reason had so often trodden that it had left a worn and familiar track he got up sick and weary and opening a safe took out a packet of documents and flung them on the table it was a sealed envelope addressed to his father and unopened which interested him most and he had a childish desire to open it if only to spite thalia why was she so anxious that he should not see the photograph which it contained was she so interested in marl he remembered with a scowl that she had spent the evening with that man on the night he died so mysteriously he rose and gathering the papers together he carried them to his bedroom he was so tired that he had not even the curiosity to probe into the mystery which attached to the photograph of an execution he shivered at the thought of the grisly contents and he dropped the package on his dressing-table with a little grimace and began leisurely to undress he quite expected that he would pass a sleepless night his emotion and the state of his mind seemed to call for such an end to a miserable day but youth if it has its anguish has also its natural reaction he was asleep almost as soon as his head touched the pillow and then he began to dream to dream of thalia drummond and in his dream thalia was in the power of an ogre whose face was remarkably like inspector parr's he dreamt of marl a grotesque terrifying figure whom he somehow associated with inspector parr's grandmother that mother of whom he stood in such awe what woke him was the reflection of a light from the dressing-table mirror the light had been extinguished when he sat up in bed but half asleep as he was he was certain that there had been a flash of some kind it was hardly the season for lighting who is there he asked and put out his hand to reach for the lamp but the lamp was not there somebody had moved it now he saw and he was out of bed in a second he heard a movement toward the door and ran somebody was in his grip somebody who squirmed and struggled and then he released his hold with a grasp it was a woman instinct told him that it was thalia drummond slowly he put out his hand groping for the electric switch and the room was flooded with light it was thalia thalia as white as death and trembling thalia who held something behind her and met his pained gaze with a tragic attempt at defiance thalia he groaned and sat down thalia in his room what had she been doing why did you come he asked shakily and what are you concealing why did you bring those papers up to your room she asked almost fiercely if you had left them in your safe oh why didn't you leave them in your safe and now he saw that she held the sealed packet containing the photograph of the execution but but thalia he stammered i i don't understand you why didn't you tell me i told you not to look at the picture i never dreamt you would bring it here they've been here to-night searching for it she was breathless on the verge of tears that were not all anger been here to-night he said slowly who have been here the crimson circle they knew you had that photograph and they came and burgled your library i was in the house when they came and prayed prayed she wrung her hands and he saw the look of anguish on her face 
I prayed that they would find it, and now they will think you've seen the picture. Oh, why did you do it? He reached for his dressing gown, realizing that his attire was somewhat scanty, and in the warm folds he felt a little more assurance. You are still talking Greek to me, he said. The thing I understand perfectly is that my house has been burgled. Will you come with me? She followed him down the stairs and into his library. She had spoken the truth. The door of the safe hung drunkenly upon its hinges. A hole had been cut through the shutter, and it was open. The contents of the safe lay upon the floor. The drawers of his desk had been forced open, and apparently a search had been made amongst the papers on the desk. Even the waste paper basket had been turned out and searched. "'I can't understand it,' he muttered. He was pulling the heavy curtains across the window. "'You will understand better, though I hope you do not understand too well,' she said grimly. "'Now, please take a sheet of paper and write as I dictate.' "'To whom must I write?' he asked in surprise. "'Inspector Pa,' she said. "'Say, dear Inspector, here is the photograph which my father received the day before his death. I have not opened it, but perhaps it may interest you.' Meekly he wrote as she ordered, and signed the letter, which, with the photograph, she put into a large envelope. "'And now address it,' she said, "'and write on it on the top left-hand corner, from John Beardmore, and put after that photograph, very urgent.' With the envelope in her hand, she walked to the door. "'I shall see you tomorrow, Mr. Beardmore, if you are alive.' He would have laughed but there was something in her drawn face, some message in her quivering lips, that checked the laughter on his. End of section 15